I'm Stephen Armstrong, the curator of the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum in San Jose, California. And today I have the good fortune of being able to speak with Dr. Jasmine Day, a specialist in mummy mania, a combination of anthropological and Egyptological study of the fascination in the Western world with mummies and Egypt in general. Dr. Day has a PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of Western Australia and is the author of The Mummy's Curse, Mummy Mania in the English-Speaking World. Dr. Day, welcome to the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum. Thank you. I love being back here in California. It's been a long time since last I was here. Well, you're always very welcome. So, mummy mania, which I presume is a subset of Egyptomania, one might, one might say. Um, just what is mummy mania? It is, as you said, the fascination that we have with Egyptian mummies, but it isn't just the interest that we have in it. It's often the habit of people, not just from Western culture, but from, from many cultures, to take uh, symbols or concepts or ideas from another culture, adapt it to their own, and almost treat it like an empty bottle into which they can insert a new set of contents, like uh, pouring out a bottle and, and putting some new contents into it. And what they insert are their own ideas, their own concepts. So we might take uh, an image from some other culture and turn it into uh, an icon of something that we value, something that we love, some ideal that we have. Uh, for example, Cleopatra is often presented as an icon of, of beauty and glamour, uh, but that's not necessarily how she saw herself or how the Egyptians saw her. That's got a lot to do with the way that the Romans put a spin on her as the seductress in order to politically undermine her. Uh, on the other hand, we might take an idea from another culture and turn it into a demon, something that we don't like, or rather something within our own culture that troubles us. So, for example, where a lot of images from ancient Egypt, such as King Tut or uh, Nefertiti or Cleopatra, have been used to represent wealth, glamour, beauty, sex, things like that in our culture... I found that the mummy is interesting because more often than not, especially in the 20th century, the mummy has been used to represent what the Western world fears and hates. Uh, everything that's literally wrong and rotten, uh, everything from paganism in, in a Christian culture, where paganism is viewed as being evil in some contexts, uh, to filth, dirt, pollution. You only have to look at the mummy movies to see that the mummies are always rotting away, even though real mummies are actually preserved. So the idea of preservation has been lost there. Uh, but mummies also uh, are sort of falling apart. They're covered in grime and dirt. They're often seen to even bleed in some children's toys. And of course, mummies are dried out and they don't bleed if you did cut them. Not that I'm going to. But uh, we take these ideas, therefore, from other cultures, these personalities or figures like uh, Cleopatra or the mummy, and we turn them into, if you like, angels or demons of our own culture. The question is, for me as an anthropologist, or the ethical question, is it ethical to do this? It's a natural part of culture to borrow from other cultures. We're not the only culture that's done that. We don't need to beat ourselves up over borrowing things. But it's, it's why we borrow things and what we do with them when we borrow them. Often we lose, as I said, lose the contents of the bottle when we replace it entirely with something of our own. What remains of our understanding of Cleopatra, King Tut, or the mummy when we replace their original meanings with our own? And is it respectful necessarily, especially to demonise figures like the mummy when they were held sacred in their cultures of origin? 
Now, is this fascination with mummies and with Egypt in general, uh, certainly everyone is aware of the Discovery Channel and History Channel, etc., are showing programs about uh, Egypt and mummies quite frequently, but is this an artifact really of the late 20th and early 21st centuries, or has this, does it have a longer history? Egyptomania goes right back to ancient Egypt, if you will. It depends how you want to define it. But the Egyptian history, I mean, the Egyptian civilization was around for so long, over 3,000 years, that by the time it was partway through or getting towards its, its zenith or its end, people by then in Egypt, the Egyptians themselves, were fascinated by their own history. You have, for example, just one example, uh, people reviving styles of coffins that hadn't been in use for centuries. Now, how did they know about them if they'd stopped making them? The answer must be that they went back to old terms, probably that had been robbed long since, and found the remains of these old coffins and said, hey, let's do retro Egyptian style, and they were Egyptians. So ancient Egypt was ancient to the Egyptians. That's the funny thing. Then along come the Greeks and Romans, and they find... Uh, Egypt really esoteric and mystical and they sort of get into it like we do today, the icon of mystery. And you have, for example, the Greeks and Romans starting up the, or, or continuing or elaborating these great animal mummy cults. Uh, you have Greeks and Romans worshipping Egyptian gods and being mummified. They, they don't just want to witness and observe ancient Egypt. They want to be Egyptians in one sense or another. Even if they dressed like uh, a Roman and were running around in togas, when they were buried, they were buried like an Egyptian, you know, because the Egyptians did it best, they thought, uh, when it comes to the death thing. And so, in a way, that was the first Egyptian revival in ancient times among the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans themselves. If we look at the archaeology, you find many artefacts in regions outside of Egypt, near Egypt, uh, where people had either been uh, um, importing Egyptian goods because they liked the style of the things, or imitating them. A friend of mine wears an ancient scarab, which I think was found in a Phoenician tomb, and I don't think it's from Egypt, and the inscription of it on it is complete gobbledygook by somebody who doesn't understand hieroglyphs. Uh, and, and it was just made as this pseudo-Egyptian touristy item in the ancient world, and somebody had it buried with them to be like an Egyptian. Uh, so it, it, it goes right back to the beginning. And then, let's see, we progress through things like the Middle Ages, a, a time when uh, we tend to think that ancient Egypt was forgotten, but new scholarship is showing that we've simply got cultural amnesia, that in fact the Arabs were well aware of ancient Egyptian culture, and the, their scholars were studying it. And it has been shown by a scholar called Akasha Eldali uh, in his book The Missing Millennium that medieval Arabic scholars began to successfully translate hieroglyphs. Uh, Jean-Francois Champollion gets the credit for having done that in 1822. And various scholars like Thomas Young, whose work he partly used in order to make his discoveries. But the reality was it wasn't Europeans who translated hieroglyphs once they'd been lost. It was the Arabs. And then that knowledge in turn was lost or simply ignored by Europeans. Many of these Arabic manuscripts have yet to be studied. So there's a whole area we could go into there. That's very exciting. It's yet to be discovered. Just how much did the Arabs know? Uh, and so then, of course, the Europeans start to get interested. 
Uh, in the what, 14, 15, 16, 1700s, there was some peripheral knowledge of Egypt. The Europeans are not going to Egypt at this time because it's dominated by Islam and there's been uh, you know, the Crusades and some unease between uh, Islam and Christianity. So very few Europeans are going to Egypt until about the 17, 1800s when they really start to get, heading to Egypt. Of course, 1798, Napoleon conquered Egypt. Uh, as a political campaign, it was a complete farce, apparently. But uh, he did bring with him not just soldiers, but scholars. And the scholars studied the monuments, and they copied down these hieroglyphs, even though by then they had no idea what they meant. But they copied them so accurately that people were able to study these copies of inscriptions and recognise the hieroglyphs and start to work on a translation. And it was uh, Champollion who finally made the big breakthrough and understood that it wasn't just a symbolic language where a bird means a bird and a man means man. He understood that some uh, images um, were represented sounds or syllables and, and so forth. And so uh, that, when, when the hieroglyphs were translated, uh, and especially following uh, the 1798 uh, conquest of Egypt by Napoleon, there was this big Egyptian revival. And when we talk about the Egyptian revival, we tend to think about this period and afterwards, though, as I've explained, it extends far earlier in history. So if we go through the 19th century, you've got uh, archaeology starting up uh, towards the end of the century. In the meantime, there's an awful lot of theft and damage of antiquities going on, tourists, tomb robbers, you name it. Everybody wanted to grab something Egyptian and rip bits off of mummies and put them on the mantelpiece. But along came uh, the, uh, the first more systematic uh, archaeologists, Egyptologists, especially uh, the one they call the father of Egyptology, William Matthew Flinders Petrie, or just uh, Petrie. And Petrie started these wonderful systematic excavations. He started the Petrie Museum in London, which I've seen, a fabulous collection. And most importantly, he trained a little chap called Howard Carter. And in 1922, Howard Carter went on to find Tutankhamun's tomb. Now, you'll notice that I'm discussing not just Egyptomania, but Egyptology. The two things are allied. And uh, one of the criticisms, perhaps, of Egyptology, scholarly Egyptology in recent times, has been that uh, the scholars have tended to turn their back on the popular fascination with ancient Egypt. We should remember that if it weren't for that popular fascination and the first, albeit clumsy, attempts to excavate Egyptian things, then we wouldn't have had the science of Egyptology, which came out of that. And it should also be remembered that it's popular interest in ancient Egypt, which is providing a lot of funding to actual scholarly Egyptology. So to my mind, these two things are related. They're in a symbiosis with each other. Okay, so I've been talking about Egyptomania up until the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922. Uh, things like Cleopatra and mummies had always been a theme in Egyptomania, and if you want, you can break it down into things like Cleopatra mania or uh, mummy mania or Amana mania, for those of you who really like Akhenaten. And uh, Tutmania, though, was something that is unique to the 20th century because of the discovery of his tomb in, in the 20th century. He was a, a minor pharaoh, of course. He was not really famous as such in his own age, not compared to somebody like, say, Ramesses II, who came just after. Uh, but uh, Tutankhamun was known just to a handful of scholars, I believe, probably in the late 19th century, correct me if I'm wrong, or certainly in the early 20th century, but the public hadn't heard of this guy. 
But when Howard Carter found the tomb in 1922, well, Tupmania exploded. And this comprises uh, the larger part, I think, of 20th century Egyptomania. It is Tupmania. And there are several movements of Tupmania. There was the 20s movement, uh, when you had uh, a lot of uh, fine things like haute couture, for example, and fashion, jewellery, being influenced by the objects from the tomb. Also very spurious things like... um, you know, crates of King Tut lemons. I don't know what King Tut has to do with lemons, but the little poster just has a picture of lemons on it, and it says King Tut lemons. Okay, well, he becomes a marketing brand. And this is the thing. Uh, It's been pointed out by my friend, uh, Professor Sir Christopher Frayling, uh, in London, who did a wonderful documentary series called The Face of Tutankhamun in about 1992 for the BBC. And you should certainly look that one up if you're interested in this marvellous series. Um... He was saying how Tutankhamun's tomb was found around the time that the modern mass media, as we know it, was really taking off in the 20s and 30s. Uh, So you've got the press madly mobbing Howard Carter at the tomb and driving him crazy while he's trying to actually conduct a scientific excavation. And then you've got, uh, as I said, all the fashion, the haute couture and whatnot being elaborated from the objects in the tomb. So all that publicity started then. And then this was revived. The uh, second period of Tupmania was in the 1970s, with, of course, the first tour of his treasures from the tomb outside of Egypt. And they toured the UK and they toured here in the US. And what was it accompanied by? Of course, a huge amount of marketing and sales. And if you ever saw that uh, fantastic spoof music video by Steve Martin, the King Tut music video, he's my favourite honky, that one, Uh, What that is sending up, according to a scholar called uh, Melanie McAllister, in a paper she wrote called The Common Heritage of Mankind, which is a wonderful paper to read if you can find it. It was published, I think, in the 1990s. She says that what Steve Martin is sending up in that video is the mass commercialism of the second wave of Tutmania in the 70s. In fact, he starts his video, uh, the the performance he did on Saturday Night Live, the original version of it, not the, the single release that you could buy on LPs. Uh, he starts off saying things along the lines of, I think that uh, all of this publicity is kind of trashy, all these King Tut frisbees, and I've gone back to the source to get some ancient melodies and inspirations for this. But then he proceeds to do something which is very uh, um, commercialised. In fact, at the end of the video, he gets uh, a blender, like the modern, super, uber-modern product, a blender, and makes an offering of this blender to King Tut, who pops out of the sarcophagus playing a saxophone, as you do. So that is uh, the epitome of 20th century Egyptomania for me. It sort of progressed, I suppose, uh, through the late 20th century, you know, mostly in children's cartoons. The Mummy has been quite big recently because... The Mummy was revived uh, by Universal Studios, which uh, did some new Mummy movies in 1999, and then the sequel a couple of years later, The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. I think they might be working on a third one at the moment. I think I heard that recently when I was at Universal Studios a few days ago. Uh, Those films are not actually, as some people will tell you, remakes of the original Mummy movies from Universal Studios, the ones from the 30s and the 40s with Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr. 
they are original stories, and if you put the two groups of films together, the 30s, 40s films with the new Brendan Fraser movies, you can see the plots are completely different. The Brendan Fraser ones are more like Indiana Jones. It's not so much really about you go in the tomb and you get cursed. It's more like, let's have an adventure, let's run around, break a lot of stuff, uh, get the girl, have a good time, and what's this about again? Oh yeah, mummies. Uh, the plot is completely different. It's obviously a post-Indiana Jones movie. So here we come into the early 21st uh, century. What will be the new path of Egyptomania? Will it mostly focus on mummies now? It seems to be trending in that direction. Uh, will King Tut make another comeback? He is making a tour as we speak, in another tour in the US and the UK. Uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what direction uh, Egyptomania takes. But as I said Whatever it does, it's always associated, especially since uh, the 1920s, with commercialism. <laughs> well, you had mentioned uh, earlier on about the way in which we appropriate a symbol from another culture and then place our own cultural values. For example, with the mummies, especially of the earlier movies, uh, everything that is vile and disgusting mm. gets... Uh, appropriated into the mummy itself. Yes. What other kind of cultural uh, lessons do you think we have to learn from the way in which we viewed mummies over the last many decades or even a couple of centuries? The lessons that we learn, as I said, are to do with um, not, not so much the fact of cultural appropriation, which is a natural part of culture. If you look at any culture, ancient or modern, it has borrowed ideas from other cultures. You look at the Egyptians and they were borrowing things like musical instruments and gods and things and from, from some other cultures, and other cultures were borrowing from them. So cultural borrowing is not uh, the culprit here as such. It's our motivations for uh, borrowing things. The Western world uh, seems to me to be very paranoid about certain things. I mean, every culture has its demons, but it's interesting to see how there are different demons in different cultures. Each culture seems to be afraid of something slightly different. We're all afraid of things like death, but then there are some points of difference. And in the Western world, uh, which is not surprising given our technology, we're aware of germs, hygiene, especially in the 20th century. And it's really interesting how, as our knowledge of hygiene and germs progressed especially after the 19th century, that happens to coincide with the rise of movies and mummies had been quite popular in literature in the 19th century and they were borrowing from 19th century literature, Dracula, Frankenstein and the mummy to make those early movies. So it all comes together. The, the hygiene awareness coincides with the time of the movies which coincides with the time of the 19th century revival of the literature in the movies. And, hey, presto, you put it all together and you get mummies representing filth and pollution. Like, I've heard it said, for example, that uh, Frankenstein's monster epitomises the idea of playing God. We should not play God. That is the message of Mary Shelley's novel. Uh, what is the message of Dracula? Dracula, it's been said, has something to do with the repression of sexuality and how it comes out as violence or sexual violence or something like that. But I had never heard a decent explanation of what the mummy represents. And uh, what the mummy has represented has sort of changed over time. Originally in the 19th century, uh, the mummy, you know, the mummy's curse idea came along. It was invented in, in fiction stories, I believe, 
so far from the evidence I've seen that a lot of the mummy's curse literature actually was developed here in the United States. It could have been developed earlier than that in Europe and Britain, but uh, some of the finest early mummy stories, which have been lost and are only being rediscovered by myself and my colleagues, uh, come from the United States. And those are to do with, you know, you touch the tomb and you die. The old idea, sort of allied with the idea of, of playing God being wrong. You know, you should not transgress on certain things. It comes from uh, a Christian idea that there are some things which are forbidden to us or some things which are only known to God or some things only God can do and we as human beings should not step over the line. We shouldn't dig up the dead, play God, etc. So that's what the mummy originally had to do with. But in the 20th century, when that idea was adapted into the movies, in order to, how should we say, to invert the old idea that we are wrong to go into somebody else's country and dig up their dead, we're wrong to steal their cultural patrimony, they tried to turn that idea around in the movies. So instead of having uh, you know, people who dig up the dead, uh, invade the mummy's tomb, and then the mummy kills them, you have another stage, a third stage added to the plot in the movies. You go into the tomb, some people get killed by the mummy, but then a hero emerges and kills the mummy. So in other words, in the end, it's fine for us to go to other countries and steal a bunch of stuff. And this is where we get the idea of Lara Croft, Tomb Raider and Indiana Jones from. It's the most guilt-free trip you've ever seen. It's quite the inverse of the guilt trip of the mummy's curse in the 19th century. Now, I've talked about how the curse was inverted and how there really are Two versions of the curse, the 19th century version, the 20th century version, Mark I, Mark II. But the point of what mummies mean out of this is that in the 20th century from the movies, if they had to show the mummy as being the bad guy, when originally the mummy was the sympathetic victim of the, of the tomb robbers who rightfully took revenge, how could they make the mummy look evil? I've, I've looked closely at the plots of these films in my book, and uh, so many writers before me have, have mulled over the plots of these mummy films Bearing in mind they're all written by different people, so it's not like a, a unified project to you know, bring down the mummy. So how did they bring down the mummy then, if all these writers weren't working together on the different films? I think the answer is simply this. It's nothing to do with the plot. Forget the plot. It's all to do with the visuals. You just look at the mummy. Most of the people who watched these early films, especially the Lon Chaney Jr. stuff in the 40s, were children, as the anecdotes suggest. There are no surveys suggesting you know, who was the majority of the audience back then, but there's a lot of anecdotal information I've come across that it was mostly kids. People who shouldn't have been watching these movies were the ones who were watching them. Adults thought they were trash. So the kids were watching them, and therefore they wouldn't have been thinking deeply about the plot and its meaning. They would have been just looking at, oh, the mummy, here he comes. What does the mummy look like? He's polluting, he's yucky, I've been through this already. The mummy looks really gross. And in Hollywood speak, Hollywood language... Ugly equals evil. It's only later on uh, in, in more recent films which are more complex that you can have um, characters who might look evil but they're actually good or, you know, the good guys wear black and things like that. In the original horror films, early 20th century, it was pretty simple. Good guys wear white, bad guys get are ugly, they wear black and so on. So mummy is symbolised visually as a bad guy. And it is from an elaboration of those visual evil traits from the movies in later 20th century culture, especially children's cartoons, that the mummy has come to be associated with a lack of hygiene, which brings us back to my original point, what is the mummy about, about that lack of hygiene? 
And so uh, it's an elaboration of something uh, which originally was just meant to symbolise that the mummy was evil. Now that that symbolism has itself become the subject. Forget the curse. A lot of mummy stories for kids aren't really to do with curses at all. They might drop a uh, a reference to it, but then the structure of the story has nothing to do with curses. It's all about how we have an adventure with the mummy, but always the mummy is our opposite. He's always uh, dirty, ratty, falling apart, making a mess all over the place. That's why kids love the mummy. But we are now using mummies to teach children how not to act, how not to be naughty like the mummy, how not to be dirty like the mummy. What's the whole point of childhood? To learn how to be an adult, to be clean in our culture to behave yourself. And so the mummy is the icon of what you don't want your kids to be. That's why it's all right for kids to play with mummies, you see, with all these toys. Now, that's okay for our culture. It's okay for us trying to teach our kids and, and, and achieve what we want to achieve. But to answer your question in a very long, long-winded way, because there's so much information to consider, the, the lesson that we learn from this is our culture... Our, um, for example, our teaching of our children comes at the expense of our understanding of another culture. That's a huge conundrum. Which is it going to be? Are we going to understand ancient Egypt and mummies and the way they were originally made and used and what they were for? Or are we going to teach our kids how to be the kind of people we want them to be in our culture? Those are two legitimate values, but we've set ourselves up, painted ourselves into a cultural corner so that we're having to choose one or the other and not both. Heck, how did we get into this situation? We, what's the lesson from this? We have to try not to paint ourselves into cultural corners and make it an either-or situation where you can either value your own culture or the understanding of the other culture. We have to try to prevent this from happening so that we can make our culture work without denigrating or overriding the legitimacy and the meaning of the cultures that we borrow from. That is a conundrum. You've mentioned some of the short stories and, and other material that you're mm -hmm. finding that's been lost yes. uh, about mummies. And also, I believe that some of your researchers have been going into areas that perhaps historians had not previously looked at with regard to, for example, mummies in the United States. Mm -hmm. So I know our listeners would be very interested to hear about some of these sources. Yes, uh, in recent years, an enormous amount of uh, 19th century and earlier literature, uh, fiction and non-fiction, things from newspapers, from literary journals, poems, stories, you name it, th these things which previously were very difficult to access, I mean, they're physically sitting there, but how the heck can you sort through them all unless you have a computer catalogue of them? Now, more recent publications... Uh, were, of course, computer catalogued. You know, something from the 80s or the 90s has been computer catalogued. My book, when it's published, uh, has been computer catalogued. What about all the stuff that was published a long time ago, way before this new technology? It's taken years, but quite a number of 19th century publications have now been digitised. Either they have at least uh, made a list of what particular articles and poems are in a particular issue of a particular journal, and you can look that up, or, in some cases, they've actually fully digitised the article, full text, as we call it, and they have either typed up or even photographed every page of some of these old literary journals and newspapers. In occasional cases, they have even put them on the internet. You need to know where to look, but if you type in things like literature, 19th century literature database, you can look up these things. And there are various sites that offer it. Other databases you cannot 
uh, easily access unless you are, say, a student or a teacher at a particular university and that university's library or public library subscribes to that database that they have to pay for. It's quite expensive, so you need to be a member of that library in order to access it. Soon I'll be going to the American Antiquarian Society uh, in Worcester, near Boston, to do some research with a friend of mine, uh, S.J. Wolf, Susan Wolf, uh, who, like me, is studying... Uh, the mummy in the 19th century. She's a historian and she is an archivist and she's very interested in the way that real mummies uh, were uh, viewed uh, in, in the 19th century and in particular the way that they were uh, collected. You have many stories that she's found of a mummy that was brought to the United States in the 19th century and no record of it survives. The record keeping was pretty poor back then, by the way. No record of it survives in any museum, or, or perhaps it never made it to a museum, maybe it was only in a private collection, this mummy, and perhaps it was destroyed by a fire, or uh, in one case I know a mummy was literally ripped apart or shaken to bits by a bunch of rowdy university students who grabbed hold of it and took it around. It belonged to a university collection, and they just grabbed it and did some student pranks and destroyed this beautiful mummy, and it's a very rare type of mummy case, I might add. There are cases like that. Now, there may be no academic records at all of some of these mummies. So, in effect, they've disappeared. They've not only been physically destroyed, but all record of them was destroyed, except perhaps for a reference in a newspaper report. Maybe a journalist heard about the mummy and made a report on it on one occasion. Well, Susan Wolfe has found these reports and brought back from the dead, if you will, some of these missing mummies by looking, not at museum records, as others have done, but by looking at 19th century press reports. It's been estimated that there are about 150 known uh, human mummies or parts thereof in the United States. Uh, S.J. Wolf feels that there may be about, in reality, about twice that number, or may have been about twice that number, about 300 human mummies or parts of mummies, in the United States, many of which have obviously been destroyed in the meantime. Fires were a big problem in the 19th century. So there's one kind of thing you can do with databases. Find the missing mummy. What am I doing with databases? I am looking for the missing mummy stories. I am finding that there are a heck of a lot more mummy fiction pieces that were written besides the famous ones that keep getting republished. Oh, another publication of Arthur Conan Doyle's mummy story. Another publication of Henry Ryder Haggard's mummy story. Tell me something new. I'm looking for mummy stories written in the 1810s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. In 1998, my late colleague Dominic Montserrat uh, in London rediscovered uh, a story by uh, Louisa May Alcott, no less, author of Little Women. And she had written a story in 1869 called Lost in a Pyramid or the Mummy's Curse. And this story was uh, not physically lost as such. He found it in the Library of Congress in Washington, I think, while he was visiting, just stumbled across it. But this story, whilst it wasn't physically lost, was effectively lost. It was unknown to Egyptologists, to Egyptophiles, to you and me and to everybody. And he found this story. And I thought, this curse story, this mummy curse story, it, it just can't appear out of nowhere. There must have been earlier stories. We know that in 1845, Edgar Allan Poe published a story called Some Words with a Mummy, which is a hilarious spoof. Some scientists use electricity, some galvanism on a mummy, and it comes back to life and shakes its fist at them for being so nasty. Uh, very funny. 
So, you know, what came between 1845 and 1869? There must be more. Well, you'll read in my book, uh, The Mummy's Curse, that there are several uh, new stories that my colleagues and I have discovered, uh, which are also mummy curse stories dating to the 1860s. I am now searching for earlier stories. The hunt is on to find this material, and I am also searching for mummy poems as well. And speaking of which, if you are listening to this podcast and you know of any uh, early mummy stories, early 19th century or even earlier than that, mummy stories, poems, plays, I'd be very happy to hear from you. Just contact the Rosicrucians. Well, Dr. Day, we're delighted to hear about your research, and certainly uh, if we receive any inquiries, we'll certainly pass them along to you. And uh, I'm sure that the... uh, the internet and podcasts, etc., are another wonderful way of gathering information. Absolutely, so it's uh, sort of democratizing uh, uh, yes. the information flow. Yes, for the benefit of all humanity. Yes. So, well, it's been a pleasure talking with you and having you here at the museum once again. Thank you. And so, we certainly hope to see you and uh, look forward to your continuing publications. Many thanks and happy wrappings, everybody. <laughs> Thank you.